Hello and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where this week I will be sharing with you some of the interviews that I conducted at the ICT Spring 2022 at Lux Expo The Box in Luxembourg City, Kirschberg in Luxembourg City where I really got to meet the most amazing people in the world of fintech, technology, IoT, futurists. We talk about the metaverse, embedded finance. We talk about the future of the world as well. So many diverse conversations and here follows just a few of them. I hope you enjoy them. Hello everyone and welcome to day two of our TV show here at ICT Spring. It's very nice to see so many of you around us and I wonder why that could be. <laughs> I think Tony you have a large bit to do with that. I know Thank you've you. just been speaking on stage but just to tell some newcomers to this entourage around us, which is your entourage really, a little bit more about you. NBA champion and club president of LDLC Asvel, born in Bruges in 1982 born into sport as your father was also a professional American basketball player. You initially started with PSG Racing in 1999, then in America, appeared in the NBA draft and was retained by the San Antonio Spurs. In your first match, you broke records. In 2003, you became the first French NBA champion and then followed another NBA title in 2005, a third in 2007. Now, injury meant you had to drop out, unfortunately, for a while, although you did return in 2011 with Villeurbanne Club as Asvel. And after a defeat at the 2016 Rio Olympics, you turned to management and entrepreneurship, which brings you to ICT Spring, becoming, among other things, an investor in the Asvel French Club. So thank you so much, Tony Parker, thank for you. being with us here at ICT Spring and here in Luxembourg. Is it your first time here in Luxembourg? Uh, yes, first time. Yeah, first time that I'm here. First time that I came in this uh, beautiful place. First time. Well, I hope you have a little bit of time to explore the center of Luxembourg as well. Now, I know you've been speaking just now on stage, but to our audience who are amassing around us right now, tell us a little bit about the the highlights of your career as you reflect. You're still young. As you <laughs> reflect back, what are the highlights for you that really stand out in your career? For me, the, the highlight it was just um, making my dream, basically. You know, all the championships is great. Uh, all the success with the national team is great. Uh, but uh, it really started with a dream. I wanted to dream big. And uh, I wanted to help my family to, to have a better life. And so when I look at it and when I look at the journey, uh, I'm happy that uh, everything that happened because I had big dreams, but I never thought that everything like that will happen. That's impossible to, to think about all of that. So my life was even better than everything that I could dream of. And to be able to share that with the people I loved and my family, that was the, the best feeling when I, when I look back. Well, it must have been incredible for your father as well, who already had that sportsmanship inside him. What influence did he have on you and your tenacity to know how to train as a young child, which you must have had to train really hard to be able to get there at a young age? I feel like I had the, the best of both worlds because my dad was American, so it was great for the mental part of the game. But being American was great for the mental part. Yeah, because, you know, we're always positive and they, they, they dream big and they, they think that nothing is impossible. So it was great for me as a kid, you know, to, 
I always knew that the mental part was the difference between good players and great players. You always had kids that they were maybe faster than me, stronger than me, uh, taller than me. But if it was one thing that uh, I was sure that will not be me, it was the, the mental part. And so between my mom, who was European and, and like... Uh, uh, down to earth and don't take anything for granted. And my dad, uh, it was a good, uh, happy middle. I felt like uh, I had a good, happy middle to attack, you know, uh, uh, being a professional athlete because it's very demanding and you have to have a, a, a like a, a lot of discipline. And uh, But I was like so motivated that uh, I was ready for anything. So then just sticking with that for a minute, you mentioned your father's mental mm -hmm. positivity because mm -hmm. he's American. Mm -hmm. Do you think us Europeans need a little bit more of that then? I don't know about Europeans, but for France, for sure. You know, <laughs> France, <laughs> they're like they're really down. And uh, uh, that's why I, I liked about, I always tell them, uh, the kids or the academy or the people that I help with when I give an advice, I always say like, if you have a dream and you tell your dream to somebody and he's not laughing at you, you don't dream big enough. And that's the US part of me that I always wanted to dream big because when I was telling my dream to people, they were laughing at me. They say, oh, you're too small, you're too skinny, you will never make it in France. And sometimes when you have confidence, uh, they, they mix that like, uh, oh, you have the big head, you know? But uh, sometimes, you know, to make it, and especially when you want to go high, you have to have uh, confidence, you know? And it's funny because when I make it to the NBA, then all the people were saying like, oh, maybe he has the big head. They say, oh, he's unbelievable because he has a great mental, you know, and he's, he's got a lot of confidence. And so then suddenly it became a, a quality, you know? So that's why I always joke in France that, you know, sometimes we should be like more positive. And just thinking about the life of a sportsman, mm -hmm. we all know that it takes immense training, mm -hmm. but the lifespan of a sportsman can be quite short because of injury, which you've suffered as well. So did you ever think about a life beyond sport? Yes. I, I always liked the entrepreneur life. I always prepare myself uh, during my career. Um, when I first arrived in the NBA, I wanted to meet uh, Magic Johnson. You know, he was a great uh, entrepreneur uh, with Starbucks or TGI Fridays. He, he was very successful in business. And one of the advice that he gave me was like, create your network when you're playing because everybody wants to hang out with you. Everybody wants to go to dinner with you. You can see but that when around you, you retire, right now. But when you retire, nobody is going to call you back. And so that's why I created a great network when I was playing to make sure that when I retire, the transition will be easy. And so I invested a lot uh, in my career to make sure that uh, after that, uh, I didn't feel like I was dying. You know, a lot of athletes, they feel like they're dying when they retire. Me, when I retire, I was super excited because I was ready to, to attack uh, my entrepreneur life. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more. But just thinking about how you created that network, mm -hmm. not everybody has the stature or mm -hmm. the fame that you had. Mm -hmm. What advice can you give everybody here, everybody around you right now? You still have an incredible gravitas, a magnetism with what you've created yourself through your whole life. So what advice can you give people to create a network that is meaningful for them, not just anybody? As simple as being nice. Just be nice to people. Just treat everybody the same. Doesn't matter if you're a CEO or you're here uh, in my company, in my group. It's very important that I treat everybody the same. Everybody has a role. Everybody can help. And so my advice would be just be nice. Just be kind to people. And then I want to also think about the players that you now mentor and the people coming up. When you see the young people around you, what top five pieces of advice do you give them? 
but just like I told you earlier, dream big and dream big. It, it sounds simple, but you, you have to, to dream big. And that's the advice that I give to the, to the kids to not put limit to themselves and to make sure that they think that they can basically do anything they want. But do you challenge them on that? When they talk to you, do you kind of spar with For them? For me, the way I challenge them is seeing every day, if they're coming to the court every day, if they work hard every day, uh, uh, discipline, work ethic is stuff that you have to have if you want to make it in life. Yeah, but you can also train the work ethic. So there's a book called Atomic Habits, for instance. I don't know, I don't know if you can, like, like, you can train to a certain extent, but for me, the difference between the great ones is you have it in you. Uh, if you have it in you, then you'll make it. I don't know if you can tr really train that, you know? Well, I don't know. I think you can train something because mm. the person who wrote Atomic Habits, he had a mm. terrible, he was a baseball player, he had a terrible accident and step-by-step, step, tiny little changes, tiny little changes in his daily over life time, over made time, all the difference. Yeah. And he gives the example of the Olympic uh, cyclists in Britain, actually, who weren't doing so well, mm. but tiny changes mm. amounted to big things. So um, it, it, it's a very interesting book, actually. But I want to now move to um, how you use your money uh, that you've created through your amazing career and how you think about investing. There are investors here and there are an awful lot of companies that would love some investment as well. So how do you think about where you position your portfolio of money? Me, the way I think, yeah, I start with my passion and what I want to do uh, and how can I impact the society and how I can impact lives and how can I change and make a create opportunities uh, for, for the young generation because now I want to give back. And so the three areas that I invest is sports, obviously, education, and uh, way of life, out yeah. de vivre. You, you know? you've, uh, you've added wine, I think, to your exactly, portfolio. Exactly. Very important. You've got so, that from your European <laughs> mother, I think. Exactly. No, for sure. I grew up in France, huh? so we love to eat. We love to, to drink uh, nice wine. So I decided to invest on the rosé and champagne. You know, uh, it's been like six months ago, something like that. And so uh, a health drink, too, that uh, came out two months ago. It's called Smart Good Things. Uh, it's in every pharmacies now in France. That's, that's my new, like, big project. Uh, obviously, being a dad of two kids, uh, the eight and six, I pay a lot of attention to what I put uh, in their bodies. I, always, uh, I was very careful with what I put in my body. And so that project was a good way for me to, to have an impact on people's life to make sure that they stay healthy. You obviously have a legacy that you can give back and you now have your two young children. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to teaching them about money, mm. um, what are you going to do? Because will they have the same ethic, that drive that you I had? Hope, or I does hope they money, don't waste it. <laughs> does money change that? Because they are living in a privileged lifestyle now. Mm. It's funny that you ask that. Uh, I always have those conversations, you know, with them, you know, because obviously they didn't grow up like me. Me and my brothers, we grew up with nothing, like nothing, teeny apartment. My kids they, is like totally different. So I spend a lot of time to, to teach them, you know, about the real life and, and what you have to do, you know, to make sure you can deserve, you know, all that. So uh, I'm really tough on them and, and, and try to <laughs> teach them to make sure they, they stay... Um, appreciative, you know, and they, they, they don't take anything for granted. And then just moving back to how you invest, have you had a time to wander around ICT Spring? No, I didn't have time, but I would love to, to go around. I love to invest uh, in tech. 
you have great companies all around the world, and I'm always interested in different stuff that is happening and new technologies. So I'm definitely going to spend some time and take a look. Well, I think there's a lot of people around here right now who would love to talk to you and have a couple of minutes of your time. And I think I'm being encouraged to give that time right now by Charlotte behind you. Tony, it's been a pleasure. Right, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your thank time. You. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to our TV show here at ICT Spring where it's a great pleasure and a privilege to introduce to you Sophie Lacoste, who Hello. is president of the Porosis Endowment Fund and also president of Fusalp, the clothing company. A delight to have you with us here in Luxembourg. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about many things, your incredible career, but also how diversity can drive innovation. But let's start off with your surname, which most people will know, Lacoste. You were born into a family business. And so you grew up with that family dynamic around you. How did that infuse your childhood? Uh, it's, it's a very, very strong infusion, as you say. Uh, you know, when, you, uh, when I was small, we used to, to show the clothing between two or three tables of commercial people. And when we sold it almost 10 years ago, we, were, we had a great fashion show in New York. So I, saw, I really lived all the development, all the growing of the brand and of the company and it was first very joyful and also I mean it you cannot learn what what we learn when you when you grow up in a family business it's really unique and it stayed with you your whole life For, of course and we are going to talk a little bit about diversity because as you were growing up did you feel at any point the female voice was not listened to of course of course, all the time. I think you, you have to really fight your way as a woman. In my family, it was quite okay because we had some very, very strong women in the family. My grandmother was a golf champion and she was very, very strong. Uh, but still, there are some seats for the women and seats for the men. So you really have to, to, to show that you can change from, that you can change seats. And it's an everyday, I think even now, it's still an everyday uh, fight that we need to lead. And I, we're not going to dig into it, but I know that um, the decision was made to sell the company around about 10 years ago, roughly. How did that feel for you? That time must have been a, a tough time. Yeah, it was a tough time for sure, but I did not sell my name, neither my family. <laughs> so I, I, have the, I have the luck to, I don't know nostalgia. So I really go forward and see what I can do. And I've had the great opportunity to buy another company with my brother, Fusalp, uh, eight years ago. And it's been so thrilling to be able to support that brand for these years. And uh, it's a great project. So it's, you know, things happen and they need to happen for good. You need to, to, to make it good. And you can bring all of that background that you literally grew up with, with your brother, exactly. to this new company and just uh, give it new life. Exactly. And, exactly. and then thinking about the other part of your life, which is the endowment fund, mm -hmm. how do you think about where that money goes? In fact, the endowment fund gives support to um, talents, emerging talents that aim to excellency in arts and sports. Which is very close to your heart, especially the arts exactly, side. Exactly, exactly. Both, both of them, because it's a family endowment fund, so we have sports and we have arts. And it's very, very important, speaking about diversity, to be able to support people that 
don't come from a very um, easy background so that they can really achieve their dreams and their goals and bring their diversity to the communities they're working in. Because you, in, in arts, for instance, it's really life-changing to have diverse people, diverse point of views, bringing their talents and their intelligence to, to the world we live, and we live now. And for people in the arts and the sports world who may not have heard about this endowment fund, how can they get in touch and what do they need to do to apply? Yeah, we have some specific uh, committees that select them. In fact, they don't apply, we look for them. <laughs> because we, we are a very, very small team, so we, we could not deal with too many appliances. So we, really, we have some experts uh, searching for the greatest talents in the fields we want to work in. And then we look for them and tend to, to support them. Of course, some of them come and then we study it, but most of the time we, we try to find them. And so you have lived quite a diverse lifestyle yourself then because you've got the clothing brand, which is a pillar of your life, whether it be Lacoste or Fuzalp now with your brother. And you also have this giving back part of your life, which I'm sure has been an incredibly important part of your life. For sure. And Tell us a little bit about the arts world and what that means to you. Uh, I, I, I was an actress for some time, yeah. I did, I did lots of theater. So it's really, you know, I need my three pillars, really. I have the, the fashion, the company, the entrepreneurship, I have the philanthropy, and I have arts. And I need, you know, I go to, 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 to a theater like three times a week. It's really something that I, I need to live. During the pandemic, it was very, very difficult for me not to go to the theater, I really felt sick for some times. And uh, I really need that time. We, we're always in a hurry. We have lots of information all the, all the time. But when you, speaking to arts, it's a breathing time. You just sit, you read, you take time to think. And I don't think we can think the world if we don't take the time to do it. It's so fascinating having you here in the hot chair directly after talking to Carlo, who was talking about the metaverse yeah. and being constantly in something. And I know exactly what you mean about taking that time out to breathe, which I think is going to become even more important with time. That's and what I feel. Then just thinking about the advice that you can give people here who might want to think about doing something like you've done. I mean, with Fuzalp, you've started, you moved in there with your brother eight years ago, and you've built it up to what it is today. What steps did you need to take to make that success? We, first of all, we really thought about what was the brand to really bring it authenticity. We bought it with my brother, but also with my uh, sister-in-law, his wife, who is the artistic director. And she's really, really gifted. So we really could have a real vision of what we wanted to do with it. And so bring it back to its roots and uh, to its uniqueness so that we could propose a really sport, chic, luxury brand for the way we live now. We need to have some comfortable clothing, practical, you can take a bike and go to a, to a very important appointment and be very smart. So that's all that we need to, to propose and it's very interesting in the way we live now. And the way we live now with fashion is changing very fast. Yeah. The world of fast fashion and sustainability are words that we hear all the time when it comes to fashion. Mm -hmm. So it's about the longevity of products. So how do you think about this when you're developing your brands? It's absolutely in the center of everything. Really, sustainability is really the one of the main um, 
concern we have. And we really, speaking about longevity, that's the right word. Because, of course, we, can, we, we, we work on the, the fabrics, we work on many things. But the main thing is to have long, long-lasting uh, clothing. We guarantee our clothing for five years. And we, we have a lifetime uh, repair. Um, we, can, we can repair them as long as you live. So it's really something that we need to do because, of course, you can, you can improve the impact, but if you keep your jacket 10 years, then the impact is very, very small. And that's the main thing we need to work on. That's exactly what I'm hearing all the time. It's mm. reuse, repair, recycle all Absolutely. the time. And I just wanted to then pick your brains on what advice you, you know, you've been an incredibly strong woman given what you've gone through in your life and the family that you were born into. Already people knew you before you walked into a room with your yeah. name. Yeah. So what advice can you give to give mental stamina to young women who want to come up and be their own entrepreneurs? I think the most important thing for me is always to be very proud of myself. Not in the bad way, but it's always very difficult when you walk into a room and if you have doubts. If you're sure that you are the best person to walk into that room and you, what you're going to say is going to be the most efficient thing people need to hear, we don't care if it's true or not, but if yourself, are, is, if you're sure of that, then everybody will believe in you. And then just linking that to fashion and the fashion world, we've seen as women that for so long models have been very young, they've been very thin. Yeah. Do you think the face of fashion is changing? Not sure about that, you know. Everybody says it, it does change, but when you see the things, it not, it's not changing so much. Um, but you can be an instigator of change with your position. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's what we tend to do. Um, we tend to, to propose a, a disruptive way of seeing things, a disruptive way of, of seeing clothing and the way it, uh, um, it, it magnifies the body of men and women. And uh, it's also a proposition of seeing uh, equality and uh, movement in life. Um, changing fashion is a long path. I think sustainability will change it deeply and that's the way we can change it. And then finally, I wanted to ask you about marketing strategies, because of course, we're living in a digital world. We're here at a digital show, ICT Spring. We've seen an awful lot of people on TikTok or Instagram or a whole range of social media sites. Do you think about how to promote your fashion with all of these social media avenues? And what do you find to be the most effective that works for your fashion brand? Uh, it's an ongoing process for sure. Uh, yes, of course, we work on all these uh, tools. Um, for us, Instagram is still very, very strong. But I think that influence and, uh, and small influence works a lot, uh, step by steps, and with a really with an infusion of the brand and of the, uh, of the, of the proposition we make. And it's what I think we need to work on. Sophie, you have such a wealth of knowledge in your lifetime. What would you like to leave us with, your thoughts for ICT Spring? Well, I think that the, the, the really we need to work on our impact and that we need to put it in the center of everything. But I think that the digital community is really, really much aware of that, much more than the fashion community, I'm sure. And uh, I think we really need to get focused on it. 
Thank you so much for your time with us in Luxembourg. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session here at the TV show at ICT Spring. I have three guests. I'm delighted to introduce them all, starting with you. You've just told us about your epic journey, but only from France. I know you've traveled around the world a few times. Uh, it's Sean Cleary, Vice Chair, Future World Foundation. We've got Nasser Zuberi, the CEO of uh, the Luxembourg House of Financial Technology, The Loft, and Thomas Kalstenius, who is CEO of LIST, the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, who wonderfully have their own position directly behind us here in this studio. Great to have you all as my guests. Sean, a delight to have you in Luxembourg. Is it your first time here in Luxembourg? No, I was actually here for the first time about 10 years ago, and uh, it's a very strange thing to say, but the only person that I saw was the Grand Duke. <laughs> well, that, that's fantastic. Well, welcome back to meet us mere mortals. Uh, I don't think the Grand Duke is here today. He, he, he was utterly charming, as are all Luxembourg were that I've met so far. <laughs> that's very nice of you. And we're very international as a crowd as well. Now, I'm not going to waste time reading out your CV, which is immense. It's vast, starting off in the Navy in South Africa, moving to various diplomatic roles, Namibia, etc. Your CV is extraordinary, and now I want to talk about your work uh, with a deep core in risk, uh, conflict, and resolution. So from all of the lessons that you've learned and the things that you, you've observed in your life, can you tell us what some key instruments are that you've deployed when it comes to conflict resolution? Well, to, to put it in context, I'm a child of the transition around the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, when the wall came down in Germany, the Soviet Union exploded, and the world was reconfigured in a whole variety of different ways. That affected conflicts in the Middle East, it affected conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa, it affected conflicts in Central Asia, and it affected conflicts in Latin America. And because I had spent a long time in diplomacy, and because I was from Southern Africa, trying to deal with those particular challenges, getting 63,000 Cubans out of Angola, uh, transitioning Namibia to independence, trying to put Mozambique and Angola on track for a transition to democracy, was a, a very natural extension of what I'd been doing in any event at that point in time. And then as a consequence of the fact that some of those lessons about which you've asked were relevant in the context of the Middle East in particular, but also Northern Ireland uh, in respect of the Good Friday Agreement. We tried to generalize the insights and then sought to find ways of applying them more generally across those landscapes. But I think there are really two very fundamental lessons that one can learn. The first is that everyone lives within their own narrative. So unless you can provide an alternative narrative, you can never resolve the conflict. It doesn't really matter what conflict one's talking about. Everyone lives within their own narrative. So one of the strategies that I guess you apply quite routinely is to say, where would you like X to be 10 years from now or 15 years from now? That, surprisingly, quite a lot of people can agree on, provided you prompt them towards the sort of things that all of us want in the societies that we enjoy. 
then you can work back from that particular point once you've collectively reached agreement on where you'd like it to be 10 or 15 years out you can then say well what do we then need to do now or in three years time or in six months time in order to get to that agreed endpoint but if you don't start with the agreed endpoint at a remove that doesn't require everyone when defining that to think about what they have to do immediately, then you can't get to the second phase of the operation. So it's about stepping stones towards that mutually agreed and mutually perceived endpoint. I then wanted to place us here today. We're at a tech event. What role has technology the digital world, we've been talking a lot about the metaverse, got in helping aid this work that you do? Well, I, I think it's clear, and, and certainly Thomas knows uh, a lot more about this than I do, but broadly speaking, the advantages of digitization are fairly self-evident. If you think of it in the context of big data, and then data mining and data analytics, and then the application of machine learning in its various forms on the data that you have extracted for those particular purposes, it's quite clear that you can gain insights which are not available within the operational heuristics of any individual human being. And that's an extraordinary capacity and unlocking that capacity and deploying it to advantage is absolutely essential now that we're in a position to be able to do it. There are of course challenges associated with that and uh, again, Thomas certainly will know about the rather remarkable article on stochastic parrots and uh, the experiences that range across the Google landscape uh, from uh, concerns about ethics within the framework of using very large language models for data analytical and application purposes in AI frameworks. And then more recently, uh, the rather extraordinary discussion about sentience within Lambda. So, you know, we haven't solved all of these problems yet. We have an extraordinary resource at our disposal. We need to employ that resource, but we need to employ it with humility and with a certain understanding of the limitations uh, that we experience at present. Well, Sean, you set up a lovely segue there to turn directly to Thomas to ask you more about everything that he's just mentioned that you know so much about. Digitalization, big data, a cornerstone of the work that is carried on at LIST. So when we think about the worldview, and Sean does extraordinary work, <laughs> like I think I, you said, putting countries on the track for the democracy. I'm not sure I've met anyone else in my life whose one of their roles is to put countries on the road to democracy. <laughs> How can the digital world help when it comes to looking and analyzing the big data that Sean spoke about? I mean, so, so we like to think that we cannot only think about digitalization. We, we, we think that the European Commission has always talked about this twin transition towards a more sustainable and digital society. We, we think there's a third dimension now, and that's also a more resilient society. And a resilient society is a, a society that can withstand shocks that can absorb shocks and even improve with the shocks, basically. And, and what we see now is a lot of shocks to our society. We have COVID, we have floodings in Luxembourg, and we have this very unfortunate war in Ukraine. And actually, one of the deep thinking is that, uh, and I, I'd like to come back to the thoughts of Nassim Taleb, who coined something called anti-fragile, is that you can build a system based on artificial intelligence cannot only 
improve the, let's say, the sustainability and the resilience, but it can also improve it. So we learn from what's going on, and using AI, we can actually become better. And, and that's the essence of a deep learning system used for our society. And that, that's where digitalization plays a very instrumental role, if we can do that. We can actually build a system that becomes better with, with shocks. And that, that's a tempting idea, no? It's very nice that you add in this word about resilience and, and having that mindset to try to make things better. But of course, that raises quite a number of ethical questions within the research and development too. That's true, but that's also the role of a public research institute to raise these ethical questions. If we don't raise these questions, if we don't discuss them, we can never solve them. So I think we, they should be raised and they should be discussed with thought leaders of different less than disciplinarities. But it's a time to bring them on the table. And I mean, I'm a techno-optimist. I think we can solve it, but we need to address them and spell it out. And that's what we do here. Nasser, with the Luxembourg House of Financial Technology, FinTech, it has a base in fintech, financial technology, but you also have a lot of work that you carry out in African countries. Can you tell us about some of that work? Um, yes, sure. Um, an, an aspect of Luxembourg that sometimes gets forgotten is its strength and work in um, financial inclusion and specifically microfinance. Most people focus very much on the investment fund industry, the insurance industry, private banking. But Luxembourg is also the European Center for Microfinance Funds. And there are a plethora of organizations in Luxembourg that are obviously working to do good to improve conditions um, across the world in developing markets. We have, since the very beginning of uh, setting up the law five years ago, uh, run a program which is specifically focused on financial technology companies, most of whom typically are based in, in, in African countries, some of them uh, maybe in Europe, targeting Africa, sorry, um, um, to see what value add we can deliver from the expertise of Luxembourg, from the expertise of our finance sector and the wonderful experts we have in Luxembourg. We bring over uh, usually between 12 to 14 firms uh, for one boot camp a year, all expenses paid, um, expose them to the expertise we have here, and really try and see how we can minimize, well, I look, we look at it as minimizing their risk of failure. So uh, rather than looking at their in improving their chances of support, because it's failure that kills businesses. It's, um, great ideas um, just need to be nurtured along their way. So, and that support continues way after the program as well. We have very strong connections to all of the firms that have gone through this program over the past five years. Some of them have even chosen to set up particular offices in Luxembourg to be close to the expertise and the people that they've met here. Um, but what we're very proud of is the way that these businesses have on the whole gone on to become very strong, very resilient and really add value in their local ecosystems, be it in Uganda, in Rwanda, in Kenya, um, uh, in Morocco, in Egypt, um, and, and really make a difference to, to the world of financial inclusion and, and bringing more people into the world of finance. And sticking with the world of finance and how easy it is for most people with a mobile app to gain access to, well, it's a form of fintech with our phones. 
When you look at the, the African countries, for example, or other countries where poverty might be an issue, do you think there's a democratization that's made available to people with the use of apps, financial apps? Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm an honorary research fellow at UCL in London, and through that um, position, I've been able to get access to some PhDs and who helped me play with some of the theories I've had in my career of, as to how innovation works. And one of these theories I've had is, is a sort of the, what I call the normalcy of innovation and how innovation typically leapfrogs over um, in different countries. So like, uh, a mobile is actually a very good example where in the sort of uh, mid-90s, early noughties, uh, Europe was actually way ahead in terms of mobile phone technology than the US, right? Uh, because the US had a fairly good system at the time. They didn't see the incremental benefit and so the technology didn't go as fast there. Whereas here in Europe we took on much um, more advanced technology and then the US leapfrogged us again. And it's all sort of tended towards a normal where we're all on the same playing field. In financial services, um, where you have countries um, such as Egypt, where 60 million people uh, don't live within five kilometers of a bank or an ATM. The mobile de facto becomes the tool of choice, the incremental value, the mobile phone, and the ability to conduct financial transactions, to make payments from that device, adds so much significant value, it's de facto adopted by the masses. Whereas in Europe, what we see is that we're still generally tending to continue using our credit cards because that is fairly efficient because we have tap to pay. Mobile adoption of uh, finance, be it that we use apps for banking, we don't typically use apps for payment quite as much as you see in developing markets. So the mobiles added incredible value in developing markets. Sean, I want to turn back to you. You are vice president of this global world think tank. When it comes to global issues, what do you see as the things that businesses, individuals, entrepreneurs should be thinking about to try to solve? Well, I think, you know, you've got to go back to basics in respect of all of this. And if I can just piggyback on something that Nasir has said here, I think one of the things that happens in innovative spaces is that when there are fundamental obstacles to achieving a standard that has become accepted as appropriate, people find solutions. One of the reasons why mobile telephony spread so fast in sub-Saharan Africa and in India, for example, was because there was no fixed line telephony of any scale outside of limited urban centers. So therefore it was a market dying for a solution to happen and it expanded extraordinarily fast in those markets. The first payment options, as Nasir knows very well, were in fact around something in East Africa called Impesa, for the simple reason that there were a tremendous number of people paying remittances back to home countries uh, who didn't have any means of doing that because they weren't banked and they weren't bankable. So as a consequence of that, there was a payment app developed utilizing mobile technology, which for a considerable period of time was in fact state of the art in the world at large. And that I think is how innovation happens. Now if you take that and apply it to your question, the only justification for the existence of a government is to enable the well-being of its citizens and those within its borders. 
Otherwise, we don't need governments. But that isn't always the case. Of course not. Of course not. But it is precisely how we should be thinking about this issue. So governments only serve a purpose if they enable well-being. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means that they have to create an equitable environment, not equality. No one is actually equal to anyone else. But the environment has to be fair, it has to be just, it has to be equitable in that sense. The second thing is that individuals must have an appropriate level of human security. It's not really a question of global security or regional security or national security that drives the concerns of most people on the planet. It's their personal circumstances. It's whether they can buy something without it being stolen or cross a street without being killed. So human security is the second driver of well-being for the vast majority of humanity and some part of that is economic, some part of that is community support, some part of that is political freedom, but it's a combination of things that governments need to engender in those environments. And then the third is what we can generalize as sustainability. And sustainability is actually just intergenerational equity. There's that wonderful phrase, which is that we don't leave the future to our children, we borrow it from them. Right? And if you use up more of the resources in your generation than others will be able to enjoy in theirs, you have behaved in an utterly inequitable manner, and that's a fairly nasty thing to do to your children and grandchildren. So governments need to get their minds around those issues and the sort of digital instruments and other related technological capabilities that we are now unlocking at scale are terribly important ways of developing new insights into how we can achieve those objectives in a coherent way. Well, what an eloquent way of talking about sustainability, a phrase I haven't heard precisely in that manner before. Turning to you, Thomas, it's another pillar of the work that you do at LIST, sustainability and how you think about that. So given everything Sean said, please pick up on how you work with sustainability at LIST. Oh, I, I mean, I 100% subscribe to what you say. It's also very much in line with the Brundtland definitions, way of defining sustainability as the right for also for future generations to live their dreams and hopes while still creating a sustainable society here and now. And, and this is why we also, as technologists, we, we try to create this, let's say, framework where we can understand the impact of certain decisions here today, but also into the future, because we need to simulate and understand what the impact is of certain actions here today, but also into the future, in order to give the right to our children to also live their dreams as they deserve to do. And, you know, coming back to, we, just, we borrow it from them. So, um, so one of our leading values is what we call sustainability by design. Uh, and it technically comes from something called security by design, where we, we changed very much the security industry you know, 10 years ago, where we started to design solutions with security by design. So they're always designed with security in mind. And we believe that we should pull off the same trick for sustainability. We should develop technologies and solutions which are already taking sustainability into account in the design phase. And this becomes very concrete for, because companies usually have a development cycle with a stage gate. And, if you think about sustainability already in the design phase, the rest will follow through. And this is why sustainability by design is for us a leading terminology, but we also try to apply it to list 
but also spread the bit the methodology around us and uh, hopefully that will help a bit at least our partners to become more sustainable and their solutions as well so and when it comes to finance and sustainability, the world of finance is changing rapidly right now. You've spoken about some ways in which it's changing. We're moving towards a cashless society in so many ways. What is your view of sustainability and finance and how that can work together? Um, th there is a huge focus in Luxembourg, particularly as considered one of the core strategic pillars of the finance sector to develop the sustainable finance area. And Luxembourg already has a huge lead over any other country in the world in terms of assets under management and sustainable funds. However, there are a lot of problems in that area. Um, and to summarize it all, it again comes back to what we spoke about at the beginning, which is data, right? Finding the right data, um, compiling that data, putting it together in a way that makes sense to be able to control and, and properly design these sustainable finance products is, at this moment, very, very difficult. And I know Thomas's teams are working on some of these potential solutions around this. Um, the other aspect, I think, of sustainable finance is what worries me a little bit is that when you consider that finance is there to finance the real economy, it does worry me somewhat that finance is trying to impose a set of criteria and rules on that real economy when the real economy isn't quite ready to be sustainable, particularly when we're talking about SMEs where their cash management and profitability is always relatively thin and then imposing restrictions on access to capital to these businesses on the basis of them fulfilling sustainable criteria of their business it could potentially cut off access to that capital because they simply can't do it in any near-term um, time frame. Um, I think we need to be quite balanced about how we look at the controls in financial services, uh, make sure that we work hard in terms of building the right data solutions so we can monitor and um, assess the impacts and, and make good decisions. But we also, it's, you can't look at it just in, in its own silo. It has to work hand in hand in, in a very complex network around the world with uh, technologies and developments that allow for sustainability in the real economy, the, the, what governments are imposing in terms of um, uh, strategies around CO2 emissions and other elements around the general stock of a country. It's a very complex situation but ultimately it's something we have to tackle, but it has to be tackled holistically, not in silos. Picking up on the word complexity there, I want to turn to you again, Sean, because you have a, a huge, I mean, you sit on so many boards on so many continents. The world is complex, but do you see any umbrella themes uh, throughout the world in terms of 
how things can improve because your whole life's work is about improving situations. So when it comes to the complexity of the world, how can you simplify those thoughts and the things that you see on the ground? But you are literally working as a global citizen to try to make things better. So how do you dig into all of those various countries within all of those various continents and try to resolve what you see as complex problems? You have to really actually make them simple. You know, there's a wonderful expression, and it's been variously attributed to Einstein and Max Planck, and I've no idea who said it because I've never found it in either one of their writings. But the characterization is one should always try to simplify complexity, but not beyond the point at which it becomes reasonable. So the, one has to understand what we mean when we say that the world is a complex dynamical system. What we mean is that we've engendered a level of connectivity within a system such that there are a huge number of nodes, a tremendous amount of feedback that occurs within the system. We very frequently can't attribute causality in any plausible way. Nothing is monocausal. A never causes B, but A may cause G, F, Q, and A feeding back into C. And as a consequence of all of that, this world is continuously in a process of emergence and occasionally on the verge of chaos. There are multiple metastable states within this system and the outcomes are not distributed in terms of a Gaussian curve, but in completely non-Gaussian ways. Now that's the problem. It's not gonna go away. It won't change in your life, never mind in mine. So as a consequence of that, we've now got to try and grapple with it. How do we deal with that? And as all of us know, the truth is we're not mentally equipped to deal with complexity in the way in which I've described it. The way we solve for these problems is through something that we can think of as operational heuristics. I know that we're sitting in a te television interview. I've done one or two in my life beforehand. I know broadly what your expectations are. I know what my fellow panelists' expectations are. So I will behave broadly in that fashion. If you throw a curveball out of left field, it'll catch me off balance. But so far, you haven't. Those, that's an operational heuristic. I came into that expecting that things would operate in a particular way. And that's how policy is made in the real world. It's never fit for purpose. It's never good enough. It creates enormous degrees of frustration among all of us, quite often. But we can use some of the new technologies that are emerging in this space to create additional capability and, as Thomas has already said, greatly enhanced resilience in these contexts. So that's broadly what we have to try and grapple with. We have to understand our limitations. We have to understand the scale of the challenge. Anyone who's tried to command their children knows that you can't command humanity. It doesn't make any sense. So the idea that you can issue edicts and then expect that everyone will comply is completely idiotic. And that comes back in a certain sense to Nasir's question or observation about how to deal with asset allocation in the overall context of sustainability. Mark Carney had a very clever thought at one stage of the game where he introduced the idea 
that there were going to be stranded assets in fossil fuel companies, and hence the valuations of those companies didn't justify their allocation of resource within the application of unlocking the value of the assets that they had for 40 years going out. Because if you couldn't dig coal out of the ground, it wasn't worth anything on your balance sheet. That's a relatively easy one in the context of what Nasir was describing. When you get a legal philosophical proposition which says we shouldn't invest in fossil fuel companies, that's a different proposition. That's not premised on an economic consideration. It's pre premised on a moral social consideration. Probably correct as it happens, but nonetheless, it's a different line of argument. And then you get into the problem that we've now got in Europe as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where there are huge strains in terms of energy security, precisely because what was assumed to be a stable supply of energy has now been interrupted for political reasons. And all of a sudden, people are reverting back to coal. Coal prices have gone through the roof. Uh, oil prices have risen very substantially. Gas prices are going to continue rising for some time. So the principle that we were articulating 12 months ago is being defied in practice by reality having intruded on the situation. And that, I think, illustrates the challenge that Nasir was describing. I know that Thomas wants to come in on a few things here. I love this discussion. I, I'm also a big fan of all your quotes, by the way. So no, I mean, if you look uh, to uh, what we have done with innovation over time, is actually we have started to distribute things, right? We, you know, ages ago we were all self-confined. We were sitting in the same place, and it was around us. We talked a few meters from each other, and over time we started to distribute ourselves. We travel more. We distribute information. We have the internet. We distribute energy. We get it from all places. So, this distributed world is much more complex and it's also more sensitive and that's why the resilience question comes into mind. Uh, but I think that sustainability has a price uh, and it's, it's a cost. And one of the complexities is these externalities because many of these costs are shared costs. So as technologists, we can develop some technologies to solve this, but we cannot share the, uh, solve this problem with externalities. Here we really need good policies because I think we need to put a cost on sustainability and then we should let the market let's say, drive it, but that cost should be done in a clever and fair way and we need to take the cost of externalities into account, but otherwise it's not a fair price. I'm not sure if that resonates with someone who is more an economist than me, but that's a, that's a bit how I see it. And, but we try to um, develop the technologies behind it and that's what we do at least. <laughs> I'm also thinking when we're talking about something like fossil fuels and uh, what's happened currently with oil and everything, that we have to deal with borders and we have to continually deal with uh, continental borders, country borders. You've seen this through your whole life as a diplomat. You've also spent time studying in Iran. I, I would like to know what your thoughts are on how we deal with borders and crossing borders. And you said before that people care about their local communities, but actually we're here in a digital world, so we're not living locally anymore. But I, I've asked a few things there, but really it's coming down to the, the fact that we're not living with borders all the time. We also live globally. Well, there's, there's three parts to the answer to that question, and I, I certainly couldn't formulate a comprehensive answer on all levels, but three, three things strike me. 
The first goes to the point that uh, Thomas has just made, this concept of a distributed world under present circumstances. What have we done? We've connected the privileged amongst us in the most remarkable number of ways over a period of about 35 years now. From about the middle of the 90s, we started doing this at scale. The Asian financial markets crash was due in part to a flood of money coming back to New York and London and Frankfurt and Paris and Zurich um, at speed, digitally empowered, at a point at which people became nervous about the risk of assets crashing in Southeast Asia at that point in time. <clears throat> so from then onwards, we have progressively integrated financial systems, supply chains, a variety of manufacturing capabilities. Think of Airbus as a perfect example in terms of the number of places from which elements are sourced. Think of an iPad or any other Apple product, the great majority of which is actually manufactured in China. All of those elements we have engendered, and that's before you get into the internet per se and social media as an additional layer uh, in terms of all of that. This has done something very dangerous, actually. It's disempowered national governments. National governments today do not have the same ability through the application of policy to either advance the well-being of their citizens or to provide protection to them in certain circumstances because of the interconnectedness of the global economy and particularly financial flows. Now, all of that is producing a significant degree of tension even within countries, never mind across borders. There are things that cause tensions across borders, but there are things that are causing tensions within countries as a consequence of this. And we have to find new ways of being able to square all of these circles. We have to be able to continue extracting the benefits that are associated with levels of high connectivity, the scale of the financial economy relative to the real economy increased between 2000 and 2008, when the financial crisis struck, up to 21 times. The financial economy was about 21 times the aggregate size of the real economy of the world at that point in time. And that's one of the reasons why we got the scale of the crash that we got, and it's one of the reasons why COVID engendered the scale of the financial recession that we experienced as a result of that. So connectivity, just like sustainability, has its costs. And what we have to find ways of doing is to rebalance between our collective identity as humans on a planet, privileged beings who are in many countries in the course of any 12-month period under ordinary circumstances, who exchange thoughts and ideas and insights and perspectives with an enormous number of people, some of whom we've never met and some of whom we only meet very occasionally. That's quite different to the way that anyone has lived on this planet in previous centuries. And we haven't got instruments of governance that can advance the well-being of citizens and those within the borders that actually grapple with these particular challenges in a meaningful way. 
Sean, Nasser, Thomas, this is such a wide-ranging conversation. And I know with all of your experiences and expertise, we could talk for the entire afternoon. But I have to move on to our next guest. But hopefully you can continue this conversation amongst yourselves. And thank you for all of the wonderful work that you do here in Luxembourg and all around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. So much. Thank you. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.